I'm here with uh, a good friend of mine, actually one of my best friends who happens to live down the road for me as well. Activist, funny person to follow on Twitter. Wow. A Drake stan. Oh, God. <laughs> Drag me. High school uh, my, my mutual depression accountability buddy. Sad Boys Club. <laughs> Sad Boys Club. But I'm here with Tommy DeMassimo. Tommy De- That's one of those white names that's hard for me to pronounce. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> but he spent several years kind of working to define for himself and for others what it means to be a white comrade or an accomplice as a white person to black people's activism and organizing efforts and their struggles. So I really wanted to have him on today to talk about some of his experiences, including his protest at Stone Mountain against the KKK, as well as running up on stage uh, two summers ago and trying to charge Donald Trump. So Tommy, you want to just go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name is uh, Tommy DeMassimo. I'm from Powder Springs, Georgia, which is in Cobb County. It's like metro Atlanta area. Uh, like the first real protest I ever went to was in the summer of 2013 in Atlanta. We were protesting the uh, no indictment, or was it a no indictment or a not guilty of George Zimmerman? I think it was a not guilty. I think it was a not guilty. Yeah, it was a not guilty. We were protesting that. And that was the first time I ever went to a protest and really like saw the power of protests, and obviously that was specifically relating to um, black people mm-hmm. and violence against black people. And uh... and to, to give the listeners some context, so this was actually the first night that I met Tommy, was at this protest in downtown Atlanta, and that night there were 36 people who were arrested. Um, no, that was the no indictment of Darren Wilson. Oh, you're this right. This was a whole year before. This was a year before that. You're yeah. right. You're right. I, I always get these protests mixed up because I feel like we've been to so many. This, yeah, I mean, that was back sort of when they were all the same mm-hmm. for a while. Yeah. Um, actually, that the one you met me at was like the first one that was ever kind of different. That was the first one there was actually some real violence. There's a lot of tension that took place at that. Well, I mean, one no, they we were that we didn't have. They before. were they they were shooting flare guns at cops mm-hmm. and breaking down store windows and yeah. like downtown Atlanta, like yeah. trashing stuff and. Um, but that was that was the first protest I ever went to, and that was very just performative. Like we stand against this, we stand together, nonviolent, peaceful. White people aren't bad. Everyone's good. Mm-hmm. We need to stand. There's that whole bullshit. Um, and then obviously a year later, the following summer, that was the explosion explosion of Black Lives Matter. Um, and I was good friends with someone who sort of pioneered a lot of youth organization. Um, in the city, and that was Ariel. In the city of Atlanta, Ariel Marie. Actually, she called me out on Twitter as a person who has always been heavily around Black people or in Black culture or whatever. Um, that very night, you know, when everyone was enraged on Twitter about what had happened, she specifically added me and said, "You know, tonight is not a night for you to speak on anything. The only thing you can do is aid our struggle." Blah. Like she really called me out, and so that was my first introduction into like what my role was going to be as far as anything I do that relates to helping black people is purely that it's helping it's it's doing what's asked it's not offering advice it's not trying to take control it's not trying to hold anyone back or get anyone to be more apologetic or it's none of that it's literally this is what we need help with and either you're going to do it or you're going to shut the fuck up and go somewhere else um so now with that kind of being an eye-opening experience, right, of having Ariel, this, this black woman organizer who you went to school with and who you knew very well, yeah. literally calling you out, right, as a white man, cishet white man, that yes. kind of really being the moment that changed a lot of your politics and a foundational moment, you then kind of moved into, between then and the year later protest I met you at, working alongside, I guess, really just doing activism for black people, but really what you were told to do, right? Yeah, I mean, there there were very few times where I actually ever, I would say, had any type of a leadership position. The few exceptions are obviously when I started staging sort of one-man protests. Which were? Which, well, I actually got the idea originally from um, an activist from Baltimore named Kwame Rose, that's his last name? He He had a video that went viral of him yelling it, uh, what's the guy's name? Geraldo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. And I just was like, I was, I, I understood immediately. I was like, the reason that worked and that went viral so quickly is because that's a narrative people like to push. 
like the one lone protester standing against the sea of police or standing against the entire media conglomerate, whatever it is, like that's an image that translates well. So we were having a lot of issues at my university, Wright States in Ohio. We're literally right down the street from where John Crawford was murdered by police in a Walmart for holding a toy gun. Um, and we had been doing that whole nonviolent, apologetic protesting all year, and all the white people did on campus and in the university was ignore us. So we did the whole apologetic, please, please help us, please help John Crawford's family. We did that for a year. We didn't get an indictment. We didn't get anything. We didn't get an apology. Wright State refused to even comment on the fact that John Crawford was murdered by police. And so as the year came to a close, we were pissed. And we saw a lot of universities were forcing their presidents to come out and say Black Lives Matter. And there was organizations on campus that wanted to do that. So I saw Eric Shepard at Valdosta State University desecrate an American flag and get into a lot of trouble. And then I was like, okay, I get it. That's power. Like, there's only so much I can do. But the difference between me and Eric Shepard was when Eric Shepard stood on the American flag, the KKK put a warrant out for him. Mm-hmm. Like, their own kind of warrant. Like, mm-hmm. if, you give us this, if you give us this guy so we can kill him, We'll give you this money. He had to go into hiding. And I said, well, what if I did that? So I took an American flag out to the middle of campus in front of uh, vets and active military people during a big event on campus. And I stood on top of the flag for several hours with a sign that basically just had like an agenda, which is right state needs to address these things about racism. This country needs to address these things Mm -hmm. about racism. White people need to do this. And that was the beginning of like just white people everywhere hating me like wanting to see me dead uh that was the first that was the first time i ever got death threats or yeah. tried to get exposed they all this crazy stuff but well so before i ever met you in person oh that's right i knew you from twitter because there was that that short video clip of you that went viral i don't know if you remember of you burning or stepping on and or i think it was both actually and stepping on a confederate flag that was after Here's the timeline. Okay. You know, you met me. So I want y'all to know, Tommy is someone who has done so much to piss off fellow white people that I get it. I get it mixed up. Here, here's the timeline of how you know me. So, so, REL starts doing some organization with It's Bigger Than You in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I'm still at college, so I'm doing organization there. But when I come home for breaks, Thanksgiving, that's and right, Christmas, I do stuff with them. Literally, just show up. I'm just a mm-hmm. body. That Thanksgiving break for me was the same week they came out with the no indictment of Darren Wilson. And what year was this? 2014. Okay. November 2014. So I get arrested at that protest I um, unlawfully like everyone else who got arrested. Mm-hmm. And you saw me there. And then the next night, we went back out every night after that and yep. kept protesting. For about a week straight. Yeah, and I was at those things. And then I would, I would be gone and then I would come back. And so that all happens. Then in April 2015... That's when I desecrate an American. Well, nice. I didn't desecrate. I just stood on it. <laughs> I, I stood on an American flag for mm-hmm. several hours. That's April 2015. Then August 2015, after and the only reason I did anything with the Confederate flag is because this was all post Dylan Roof, right? And I there remember. was this debate: mm-hmm. Do we let them fly the Confederate flag? Is it a symbol of racism? And I was just like, I don't understand. This is not a conversation. The only thing you should do with a Confederate flag is burn it, right. is slap it in the ground, is make fun of racist white people and make incest jokes about them and just desecrate their whole heritage. And so that's, that was the first thing that I ever did that went viral. I was, I slapped, I burned a flag and I started slapping on the ground and I was screaming at like a thousand. I got you. So that people, so that's where I had the timeline confused, but I remember when you were doing the, the, the desecration of the Confederate flag. I didn't see the direct pictures and videos of you doing it. I saw r- very big accounts on social media who were racist white people who were sharing it and calling you like a race traitor and these kinds awesome. of things. Great. And I and I thought to myself, name, right? <laughs> and I thought to myself, I have definitely seen this person that you know protest in Atlanta before. And so yeah, that was definitely my first experience with you. And I do want I'm going to push back on something that you said about the incest jokes. Uh, for me personally, I don't find that funny. You know, a lot of a lot of people are concerned with making fun of white people and using incest as a as a joke, and it's you know it's a white thing. But uh, incest occurs in all communities, and it's normally forcefully done through assault uh, or through a predatory family member. So on this podcast, we don't make jokes about incest. I got you. I feel you. All right. So just want a little educational second there for that. Um, so where we are now is 2015. You 
kind of as a white person had this realization that your job is to be a body on the line for yeah. black people and their struggles. And really, based on your work, Latino people, Asian people, people of color, marginalized people, queer and trans people in general. Um, and then we move really into, we're at 2016 now. Yeah. Go like ahead. March 2016. Again, it's always, it's always the same reoccurring theme. There's a debate about something amongst white people. It's like, do we do something or do we not do something? And then I try to find what I can do that literally forces people to pick a side. Because um, I don't believe in the whole conversation, mm-hmm. bringing everyone to the table so that two sides can talk to each other. That's a lie. So I just try to find things that are going to force people to stand on one side or the other. And that was the Trump thing. People, Black people were getting assaulted at his rallies. Protesters are not. Sometimes it was just spectators. Mm-hmm. They were getting assaulted every week, and it was escalating every week, and he was hyping it up. Yep. He was telling people, we'll get you a lawyer, do it. This is how we used to do it. Mm-hmm. All that racist dialogue. Well, and I don't know if you're OU. I think you know. Me, personally, I went to two of them as counter as a counter-protester, two of his rallies, and I went to a third one in Alabama just as actually a news reporter or, you know, with a media crew just doing photography and interviews, right? Mm. And at all three, both when I was a counter-protester and just on the media team, I was pretty much assaulted and assailed, both inside the rally and outside, even when I had a press pass, just for being black and having my hair picked up in an afro and being with other black people. We were pretty much just instantly assaulted. So this is kind of the context from which you get interested in going to these rallies and you know, yeah, I mean, being again, provocateur. There's, there's these terrible things happening, and then there's the white people who are like, fake shocked like why is this happening why are these black people getting beat up at these rallies and then there are the white people who are like that's wrong but if we do anything mm-hmm. that aggressive then we're wrong too right and i'm like no if someone is if anyone anywhere on a societal level or interpersonal level is perpetuating violence against you or someone close to you that you care about then you have a right to defend yourself mm-hmm. and that's basically what i was i was just like my thing was like, I'm going to shame other white people into literally <laughs> picking a side. They're, I mean, I'm going to run up on stage on Donald Trump, one, to expose him mm-hmm. for the coward he is, and two, it's, it's white people after that are either going to be able to say, I agree with what he did, I stand by taking that measure against a man like Donald Trump, or I don't. And that's, that's, that's where I like, that's where my work happens amongst white people, which white people don't like, because then it's actually forcing them mm-hmm. to pick a side on an issue, which is like... Say no, you think I'm wrong, that's fine, but if, it, so, if it was up to other white people, we would have waited until someone had gotten killed at a Donald Trump rally. Right, right, right. And right. then we would have been like, this tragedy, how could this have happened? What could we have done to stop it? You literally could have done anything. You could have done a lot of things, right? Yeah. So so here we are, it's 2016, you have looked at these you know, rallies where the videos go viral of Muslims... Uh, peaceful protesters, black and brown people, just getting often getting their asses kicked yeah. inside these rallies. So what do you do? I I just started planning. I said, all right, the, the image that they keep promoting is this Trump standing at the Trump podium, and he's just this super strong guy, and nobody can touch him, and he says whatever he wants, and he's unfazed and unbothered. And I was like, he's a chump. Anybody who's who's ever been in an argument with, with somebody knows he's a chump, that if you got two feet near him with an aggressive tone, he'd start sweating and pass out. (laughs) So I was just like, I need to just pull the veil off this guy real quick. So I said, I'm just going to reclaim his space. Like, he's been given the safest space in the world. He gets a podium, a stage, and 16 Secret Service standing around him. So I said, I'm going to infiltrate that space, like I said, and pull the veil down, really on him, but just the whole political structure. And so I, I started planning it. The night before, Chicago actually shut a rally down, so I was kind of nervous. I was like, is this even going to matter anymore, or uh, is it going to be too hard now? And it, it did show to be a bit too hard. He, bu- he bulked up his Secret Service after Chicago shut that rally down that night, so I wasn't able to get up to the stage. If he had had a regular amount of security, I think I would have got it, but I basically just showed up early. I waited in line. Um, I, I stood by the rail all day. And then I just waited for the right moment. He started doing the Trump thing, which was someone was in the back of the audience holding a sign. And everyone started arguing, like, get this guy out of here. Mm-hmm. And he started saying some real Trump things. So I could tell he wasn't focused on anything. Mm-hmm. He was focused on his spiel. And as soon as he started going off on that and bigging himself up, I was like, he's not going to be expecting this perfect time. 
So I hopped over the rail and I charged toward the stage. And I got all the way. I got like two hands on the stage. Mm-hmm. But you know, U.S. Secret Service, they don't play. They got, <laughs> they got me out of there real, real fucking quick. I'd like to take a moment from the interview real quick to shout out two sponsors of this episode whose generous donations on Patreon actually allowed for this episode to happen. The first is Maria Thomas. The second is Ben Sparbaro. And please forgive me if I mispronounced either of your names. If you enjoy the Groundings podcast and you want to keep it alive and thriving and not just continue it, but help it grow and get better, you can support me and the Groundings podcast at patreon.com slash half Atlanta. Anyways, back to the interview. So, so, so now you and your J. Cole Dreamville shirt have hopped over the uh, guardrail, I guess. the guardrail, yeah. and you have, as you just said, charged towards Trump. Two hands and like almost a knee, really, up on yeah. the stage. How many Secret Service agents swarmed you? On, I mean, I, on the video that I saw, it looks like five or six. So you have five or six Secret Service agents around tackling you. me. Tackling one me. of them is an actual like former Ohio State lineman or linebacker or something because it was in Ohio, so he had a former Ohio player come out there and stand as one of his secret service wow. like, to really connect to the people. <laughs> but I mean, it didn't matter. All those people around him, he still, as soon as someone screamed mm-hmm. and he saw me, that's that's the that's the famous gift now or the famous reaction. Where Trump turns and runs away. He shakes the podium. He almost knocks it over. He, he flinched. Mm-hmm. And like the world saw him flinch. And I, and I think that was a turning point. Um, at least in what I saw, it's kind of like nobody after that was like really scared really like scared of his personality everyone knew he was a chump they were just scared of the dangerous effects of what he was going to do but Mm -hmm. i mean yeah so so in this moment you take it upon yourself as a cishet white man to charge the stage at trump who is running to be president and surrounded by secret service um many people would say that's unstrategic untactical that that is uh you yourself taking up too much space that you know that's just unstrategic, and you think of there's there's other why anti-racist quote unquote activists who are white, like who's like Sam Whiteout for example. Um, I almost said Sean King, but that'd be very rude. Oh, um, <laughs> but stop. <laughs> but so so you know in putting yourself in what you did in that moment, right, where you think. You have nothing to lose except putting your body on the line to get this fascist off stage and charging the stage as compared to someone like Sam Whiteout, who, I mean, I don't know what his activism is, but he calls himself an anti-racist white activist. What do you, what do you make of that, that difference? It functions for me on two levels. I'm going to condemn myself and defend my work at the same time. On the condemnation side, uh, my work will always... Anytime I do something like that, it was always going to be inherently problematic because I'm going to get a certain amount of attention, I guess, um, that I know is going to come from the fact that I am a cishet white male. And anytime we do anything, it's lauded. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's it's given twice as much attention. There's 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 definitely I, without going into too much detail about it, there's definitely something problematic about that. And there's also definitely something problematic about the effects that my actions indirectly or directly could have on on people of color who might be in the same space with me, on women, on femmes, on, you know, any other marginalized people who might share space with me, mm-hmm. my actions might more so result in something negative happening against them than even me. Um, and that's sort of a mistake that I made at Stone Mountain that I didn't make going into the Trump protest because I knew I was going to do something very dangerous the day of the Trump thing. And and just to give listeners a reference to the to or, or context to the Stone Mountain reference, that was um there were seven of you, right? There were seven. There was um uh um there was se- so there were seven of you who went to Stone Mountain during a KKK slash Confederate rally that was taking four place there. Four of which were uh, black women. Okay. Oh, and there was and then there was a, another girl and another guy there. But again, my 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 thought that whole day was just because I was after the initial interactions that I had with them and I got assaulted at that day by one of them um, after that after I got assaulted I kind of just st- stopped being a good activist and I just started being angry mm-hmm. and I wasn't 
I wasn't at all times making sure that I was remaining in communication with the people of color I was sharing a space with. So, and that was that is that is dangerous. That mm-hmm. that could have been deadly. So, in condemning yourself, you recognize that. And and the Stone Mountain. That was the day that that kind of viral photo went out, where the white man's pulling a gun on you. Yeah. And you're unarmed, standing there on top of Stone Mountain. The, the the KKK member actually is who he was was pulling a gun on you, and you're unarmed, and the cop was pu- pushing you back and not him. Is that that's that day, right? Yeah. He, it sort of looked like he was just trying to appease the guy with the gun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He was. Um, what do you mean? So so that day, just you know, that kind of context is is what made you angry enough. And in my opinion, a righteous anger, right? Because you're angry about white supremacy. I think my anger is right, but I think, again, as a cis-het white man, any time I share a space with a marginalized person, even if it's it's not in a protest, I I can, just by my identity itself, (laughs) there can be negative uh, repercussions to it on the people around me. You see what I'm saying? In what ways? In, in in really any ways, I mean. Uh, but I want I want you to give me one or two specific concrete ways. Um, I'll say this. I recently I was in a I was in a setting with um, some black women and femmes, and I was in another room, mm-hmm. and they were having a conversation about something, and then one of them brought me into the conversation, um, and then one of the other um, black femmes who was there, I guess was triggered by me coming into that space and so on first sight i'm sure anyone would be like it's not that serious but i i can never forget that people like me who look like me who sound like me who are me mm-hmm. have been destroying the world for a very long time and so that there's a certain I, there's a certain carefulness and and cautiousness that i have to take mm-hmm. because of so my privilege. So my question to you, though, is is I understand that that's pretty much the basis of all my interactions with white people as well, right? Mm-hmm. And you know this just because you know me, right? You're one of my two and a half white friends, right? Um, Honored, but <laughs> and the half is because I might have to drop someone, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, well, I, but, I but, say all that. But to my, say. hold on, my my question, hold on, my Go question ahead. to you is. I understand the ways in which that informs people, the way people, especially marginalized people and black people, respond and act around you, right? Mm-hmm. That yeah. informs that heavily, you being a white cishet man. And you're saying that it informs the moral nature of your anger. Do you see what I'm saying? You said that your anger is right, I said righteous, yeah. but you're saying that it, that still informs that anger. Yeah, definitely. And I'm asking how. I'm talking specifically on the anger that took place between you protesting the KKK at Stone Mountain, Mm. the whole year or two of protesting then, and then the Trump rally. What about that anger to you might have been not righteous or been an or or ill informed? Does that make sense? Yeah, um, I've seen discussions people have about like white adventurism and protest. Mm-hmm. And I've never felt that. I've never gone to any protests like, oh, this is going to be lit. Right. We're going to tear shit down. And I, I've never felt that. But I have wondered if if for white people, specifically n- super peaceful, nonviolent protests, can be sort of a cathartic mm. get-out-of-jail-free card for them. Like, you know how people go to church on christmas and easter and then it makes them feel better about right not going, not to, church. going to church all year i i i do wonder sometimes if i give myself if my if it's a guilt thing that mm-hmm. i and i do all this to trick myself out of some guilt in which case if anything that i'm doing that that has a, a some sort of a selfish desire i think would be it's some way problematic and so, again, I just I have to understand that all those things can be at play. So, I mean, and I, I get what you're saying. Um, I, I guess my, my problem with, with, with your, your conceptualization, I, or that's a you know, heavy word, I guess, in a general conversation like this, but your idea around your anger being condemnable is I would disagree. I, I would disagree though. I think you did one of the only righteous things that a white person can do in this society, which is get angry about racism. Let me let me let me be that's what I guess I was trying to get to. I don't think my anger is in any way anything other than righteous. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm not getting angry for fun for fun. Um 
I'm getting angry for the same reasons that John Brown probably got angry. The same reasons he got mad. I, I see what you're I, saying. So I, but I still have to... He didn't, mm-hmm. he didn't go enlist a whole bunch of marginalized people to go down with him. Right. Um, he kind of did. Well, that's a whole other conversation on the history of John Brown and his. But so, I, 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 again, I, I just think so about let me say sharing this. space. Let me say this. Sharing space is important. You know who Jane Austen is? Yeah. She's that older white anti-racist lady who's literally been doing anti-racism work in white communities for decades now. Mm. Okay, I just got to pause right here and let the listeners know. I meant to say Jane Elliott, but I accidentally said Jane Austen. Just FYI, I know who I know the difference between the two women are. It was just a slip of the tongue. Sorry about that. If it's not like her, David Rodiger, or John Brown himself, those are pretty much the three white people I think all white people should I don't, should try to be one day, right? Right. And that means a lot coming from me because I genuinely don't care what white people want to be. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> I mean, white people's involvement might arguably someday have been totally useless. I mean, to, to largely to, <laughs> largely today it still is. Useless. Right. I mean, I just mentioned Sam Whiteout and said I, he's called an activist and I can't even he, name he his activism. Personally, he personally used identity politics to sustain a career off of a woke white friend image without doing any of the work or listening to any of the people he should be listening to. I think that's part or, of it, but I also think that... Or risking anything. All he's done is gain. All he's done is benefit. I agree. Let me say this. I have never thought that Sam Whiteout was angry. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, doesn't... And, and he first got famous because he was in a black frat as a white boy. It had nothing to do with politics whatsoever, but he got famous off of that at a moment where he then saw that he could turn that into this this quote unquote white boy persona. Well I think it's I think his official campaign is called allyship. Which is ugly which is ugly. (laughs) I'm just gonna straight up say that it's ugly. If you're listening Sam White out that's ugly. But uh, so I I brought up Jane Austen because she I heard her speak in person at um, at Georgia State Five years ago, almost, and I and one thing she said that really resonated with me is until white people find it in themselves to get angry and as angry as possible and mad as hell and every other synonym you can think of for angry, mm-hmm. not much is going to change in white communities. I one thousand trillion percent. So I think for you to say that your anger comes with partial condemnation and righteousness is bullshit, in my opinion, because if all of my white friends had the and this isn't me gassing you up. I'm saying this because I know white people yeah. will listen to this. But had the audacity to confront the KKK face-to-face or charge the stage at Trump, we might not have a Trump right now. No, definitely. Right? If at every single Trump rally, there were several, not just one, but several white people charging that stage. Mm. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the part of the story yet with the aftermath of that. Right. With your core and your investigation and the FBI and then racist white people saying you were an ISIS member, you know, which well, to me was hilarious. Trump said that. Trump himself, that's right. So, because I want to I wanna cap on that because I think it's a good point. I guess I don't want to say that, that I want to say that me existing in certain spaces can be indirectly violent to other people. Now is that be but but not because of my anger, not because of the way that I move, just simply by being there. I think just a, your presence. I agree. I think a lot of people, a lot of specifically marginalized people. Pe- let me slow down. I think a lot of marginalized people. <laughs> I'm not editing that out, by the way. That's staying. That's fine. I need them to know that you are. <laughs> I can't talk. You are, you are you are not perfect, and you are <laughs> definitely Take below me flaws. when it comes um, to speaking ability. You're I was going to say a real basic Drake lyric, <laughs> and I didn't want to get roasted, so. <laughs> I'm always That's down fine, for a white person getting roasted if you want to say sweat, the Drake lyric. Pants, hair tied, chilling with no makeup on. That's when you're the prettiest. All right, so moving on. Hope that you don't take <laughs> So you don't even trip my friends say you ain't gonna drink. All right, we're done. I'm sorry. I don't know why I hang out with this person. Do y'all hear this? That was. I don't know why you hang out with me either. Really. <laughs> that was the uh, lyric to. to it could have been worse. To best I school. Just because I don't want to get sued for copyright. That was that was the best I ever had by Drake. <laughs> I could I could have quoted High School Musical. 
We're, we, will, we will come back. We're going to do another episode with your theory on why High School Musical is about a communist revolution. Please. No, I, I, no, I, I want everybody long. listening. Season two of this podcast. This is season one. Season two, we're having an entire episode about that. The revolution is coming. Okay, so Wild anyways, things. back on point. And I'm not going to edit this out because I think the people need to hear and know what's The people coming. know they do need to hear. <laughs> this is the tipping point in the cultural so, revolution. So I want to get back to the story a little bit. You have so you've charged the stage, George Trump. Well, this is the moment that t- was turned into a gif that was shared all across the internet, where Trump turns and tries to run. You now have five, six huge ass men who are like grabbing you and taking you away. Mm-hmm. What next? Do you want to hear something scary or something funny? Because they both happen. Surprise me. <laughs> I needed to pee, and they had me <laughs> handcuffed, and I said. I have to pee, and if you don't, unzip my pants and pull my penis out so that I can piss. <laughs> and I you said, said this to Secret Service agents? Yes. Okay. While they're asking me if I'm a terrorist, <laughs> I said, if you don't do this, I promise you I'm going to pee in that car and all over the next person who grabs me. And, and, and if you happened? don't want pee on you, then you're going to do exactly what I just uh, said. There is a large population of people out there who do want pee on them. I don't think they wanted my piss on them. So in the middle of them threatening me, they're like, oh, yeah, this one guy. They were like, this one Secret Service guy just fell and broke his nose. That's your fault. That's assault. They basically were like, they were trying to tell me, they were like, were you trying to hurt him or were you trying to make a statement? We need to know right now. Mm-hmm. And at first I was like, I'm not answering anything until I talked to a lawyer. Right, right, right. But it became clear to me that if I gave a no answer, I was going to go somewhere very bad like they had two they had two vans mm-hmm. and one was like the uh the city van or mm-hmm. like the city jail right, right. and then the other one was like all black the secret service van yeah basically. and i was like i was like i was just trying to make a statement like let's just <laughs> like let i let i hear thousands of white people screaming kill him in mm-hmm. the 50 feet away from me like right. it will take nothing for them to break down a barrier and come beat me to death i was like you know what let's wrap this up let's- and, and so this is so this is at a moment where literally you just did a huge political act and within and and before we dive into actually the legal implications of that on your life for the next really year or two following you're already immediately being coerced and and kind of uh forcibly led to make statements and to choose to make decisions right off the bat they're they're asking you basically was this a violent act or are you just wanting to make a statement yeah knowing that no matter which way you answer it's going to be spun around either way right yeah and and i mean and and I also didn't know how Trump was going to take it. And he, of course, took it the way we all would, ex- at this point, would expect Trump to take mm-hmm. it. So I say no. I wasn't trying to do anything. They sent me to the city county, uh, the city jail. And I'm stuck in the city jail for, like I think, like six or seven hours. In that time, one of Trump's staffers showed him a hoax video someone made of me where I was desecrating. Showed Trump. So Trump. Where I was desecrating an American flag. But somebody had re-edited that footage of me dragging an American flag with what was supposedly ISIS music yeah. in the background, <laughs> and then they photoshopped an image of me holding an ISIS flag mm-hmm. with a, a Mac in my hand, a Mac-10. And so Trump which is, tweeted... Which is, a, the, which is a gun for all you suburban kids listening. Trump tweeted the video, the link to the video, that mm-hmm. like popped up with my name, and he said, um, I think it says, Ohio stage rusher... Thomas DeMassimo has known ties to ISIS mm. should be in jail. Mm. So some somewhere between my original booking, I guess I got placed on some sort of watch, no fly, no go anywhere list. So I got mm-hmm. put in isolation and I had to sit there for them to like figure out whether or not what he just tweeted was true. And they immediately were able to, to determine that's not true. I don't have any known ties to mm-hmm. ISIS. So not only so not only were there implications to your actions, but now you're facing implications and invest and even deeper investigation immediately off the bat based on his tweet. Yeah. That align you with ISIS. Yeah. And then he also went in literally that that night he had another valley. He spoke live for seven minutes straight about me. He basically tried to build me up into this like assassin that mm. George Soros and Hillary Clinton had hired to come and try to stop him from making America great again. <laughs> and like he, he goes into detail about how athletic he thinks that I was and about how yeah, no one I remember can believe that. I made the jump and Well and I remember just, I'm not very athletic. I think wondering. it was actually your brother who tweeted at me 
however it was, someone who you're close to and who we both know tweeted at me basically asking me to share a link or, you know, share the word on Twitter. And I remember me and Elle taking to Twitter and trying to just share the word, like, right after it happened, like, hey, our friend Tommy kind of just did this thing and is being detained. And I remember almost every single response to everything I tweeted in your defense or just sharing the word in general was that video claiming you were in ISIS. And I just was just like a slew of racist white people who are tweeting this video, including, you know, those big name blue check racist accounts. There's one lady, she has blonde hair. She's very, very racist. I can't remember her name. Not Ann Coulter, but, but they all kind of fit the same mold. I, I didn't, I see, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see the first 24 to 36 hours of what they were saying about me because I was locked up. So while you were locked up, it was essentially I mean, T- Tommy DeMassimo is an ISIS agent. Was well, essentially. Yeah, like I got out after eight hours, mm-hmm. but I, I literally had to turn my phone off because my yeah. Twitter was, yeah. it was crashing my phone. Like I couldn't, nothing on my phone would work because of how much hate mail mm-hmm. and shit I was mm-hmm. getting and people threatening me. It's funny because they all kept sharing the wrong information because I got booked wrong. Mm-hmm. So they said that I was 31 years old and all this extra shit and I lived somewhere I didn't. And I just kept retweeting stuff like, oh, no, how'd you guys find out? Like, <laughs> there's just all bad information, yeah. fake yeah. news. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, so that sucked. And basically, like, the thing that I learned that I didn't know before all that was I was just cha- I was just charged by the city government with inciting something, inciting violence or something like that. But it was a misdemeanor. It was going to be a city thing. It was going to be a big deal. But um, I decided to go on CNN. I thought carefully about whether or not I was going to do anything, and I went on CNN Live, and I did about a four or five minute li- uh, segment with um, some one of their people, and I basically just didn't apologize for anything that I did. I was like, everything that I did was okay, mm-hmm. Trump's a liar, he's a bully, like, this was okay what I did, I stand by it, and then, then it became a question for everyone else, and I also said that I wasn't on ISIS. They asked Bernie Sanders what he thought about it, they asked Hillary Clinton what she thought about it. Hillary Clinton stole my quote. I was called Donald Trump a bully first. She started running ads based off that. <laughs> Run me my check. Like I mean, Hillary's known for being a thief. Stuff that, yeah. But um in Haiti, but anyway. So then after I guess I decided to run my mouth, the federal government decided to charge me because they needed to let every other protester mm. know you're not allowed to do that. Like they, they they wanted to make sure everyone knew that our politicians are untouchable. They stand behind Secret Service. You're you. They are literally untouchable. They're it's a caste system. You cannot. So so essentially. So they charge. What you. was originally just a small city misdemeanor, in the city you lived in, after you didn't back down or show public regret for what you did, you faced retaliation. Yeah, I faced. The, basically, they charged me with this federal statute, which is a criminal trespass, but they. They, they changed the writing of it in the 1980s after someone tried to assassinate Ronald Reagan because the problem was they didn't have a way to set a legal boundary around a president when he's walking down the street. Like, how can you say someone's trespassing into his space mm-hmm. if he's walking down the street? So what they said was anytime Secret Service surround anyone, they, they create an invisible boundary that is federally restricted land mm. and you can't cross it. And it's really just a way to deter protesters. Right. Because they know nine times out of ten, no one's trying to assassinate the president. Right, right, right. But they don't want anybody using his space to Hmm. grab the mic and make a statement. So That's interesting. I actually did not know that. It's suppression. That's all it is. They're just trying to suppress people from getting to that level. Because, I mean, the president's mic, which he became the president, that's the mic. Mm -hmm. That's the God mic. You grab that, you say whatever you want. Everybody in the world's going to hear it. Right. Um, So so I was facing a year in prison, a $100,000 fine. And I was trying to fight my case. I was pleading not guilty because I was saying, how the fuck was I supposed to know I was in a federally restricted area? That's dumb. I came through a metal detector. They knew I wasn't going to hurt anybody. I had no weapons. This should be thrown out because you guys, there's no posting. There's no, nothing in there said. Like, it says something in the, the language that has to be well marked, and it wasn't. So anyway, so I, what I thought, I, that was my argument. And, and I was on... I wasn't allowed to leave the southern the southern half of Ohio. It's a federal area. All this, I started going to a gun range because I became more interested in self defense, mm-hmm. obviously because of the death threats on me and my family. Right. Which was apparently a violation of my pretrial service agreement, which said I cannot possess a weapon, which I thought meant cannot possess as in possess to own. To own. So I thought if I went into a gun range where you hand them the gun right back and come mm-hmm. in with an ID, right. you're surrounded by cameras. I thought that was definitely okay, but they freaked out. 
Um, don't know how they knew. I mean, somebody snitched. They were surveilling you. Thanks. Mm-hmm. So basically, um, one night my Wi-Fi goes out, and I'm like, hmm. And I already have very strong paranoia at this point. Like, I, I well, you're in the midst of a federal investigation. Against, just all my stuff. I, I already have really bad paranoia from everything that I've done protesting. So my Wi-Fi going out that night, I was like, that's something. And it was also the night that they killed uh, Alton Sterling. I remember that. And so I was tweeting some real white people. I, it was what I tweeted. I said, white people, the next time you see police about to kill a black person, intervene. I said, I'm not saying you have to kill anybody. What I said is you don't, you don't get to stand there and let the police kill a black person. You must mm-hmm. put your body in the way at least to stop the officer from killing the black person because in the video of Alton Sterling there was so much time mm-hmm. where if a white person had given a damn they could have stepped in and stopped that whole thing and he'd be alive mm-hmm. but but you know white people they, they don't believe in crossing that line so I was tweeting shit like that which they had a problem with and I guess that sort of that me plus me going to the gun range they decided well fuck it he violated his pretrial service agreement so he's going to jail so they cut my Wi-Fi off. I wake up in the morning for class because I was in summer classes. And I have two missed calls from the pretrial service office. I call him back. Uh, it's not my usual pretrial service officer because he's out of town. I was like, um, hey, I just had two missed calls from you. Just call and see what's up. And they said, where are you right now? And I said, I'm at my house. I have school in like 15 minutes. And then they hung up. And I called back and I was like, trying to, like, what the fuck? I called back and no one answered. And so my paranoid ass was like, this is too much shit going off. They're, I was like, they're about to arrest me. So I go bang on my roommate's door and I said, look, I think that there's a good, strong possibility I'm about to get arrested. So I'm about to dip. I was like, if they, if they, the police come looking for me, tell them I'm in class. So as I'm, as I'm starting to get ready for class, I call my lawyer and I was like, look, I'm not trying to be paranoid, but X, Y, Z just happened. I think I'm about to go to jail. And my lawyer's like, I haven't heard anything, but let me look into it. I'll call you right back. He calls me back two seconds later. You need to get down here right now. Federal marshals are on their way to your house to detain you. Mm-hmm. So I jump in my car. I drive downtown. I get to my lawyer. He starts showing me all these security fo- footage, photos they have of me in the gun range. Mm-hmm. And they're all from, like, the strangest angles that just make me look huge, like an anime character, like I was going to kill Trump or something. And I go into court expecting to be able to and let me let me ask real quick not to interrupt but how far into because you have been investigated you know for the trial how far into the trial or into the investigation was this at this point three months three months yeah. so this is three months of highly stressful oh yeah oftentimes coercive manipulative I didn't le- graduate on time because of that right I, that's why I was taking summer classes and I mean the the court system is manipulative as always so and but this is like a federal the case federal court they say they have an over 90% conviction rate right if, if the feds charge you you're gonna plead guilty so this is so this is after punishment. three months of this now Wi-Fi's out you're basically being taken back to the to the jail right or to oh, the um they were just gonna detain me I, I don't know what they were gonna do with me so I go into court thinking I'll be able to plead my case to the judge. Like, i sorry, I didn't know. I couldn't go to a gun range. I'll never do it again. I had this whole speech I was going to give her. Well, I got in there. She did not have the time for me. She just started going off on me about dangerous what I did was. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, I shot a piece of paper. Like, are you kidding me? Like, you've, you've sent people to jail for longer. Like, if anyone's done violence, it's you. But So, basically, she was like, we're going to put you on home detention. And I was like, all right, well, that sucks, but that's not the worst thing in the world. She's like, but until we can set it up, you're going to go to jail. And I was like, what? <laughs> so then they they send me into the bottom of the federal court building, and I'm down there with, like, literal cartel members. like, cra- And I'm just like, I shouldn't be down here. Like, <laughs> this, is, this is wild. And so they send me, like, four hours away to Shelby County Jail, which, shout out to everybody in Shelby County. That is goddamn the worst jail I've ever been in. And I've been in some bad ones. The first thing I do when I get in there, they tell me, they say, don't use the toilet. It has staph infection. Mm. The toilet has staph. And I'm like, Mm. well, I was like, so what do you do? And they were like, we just hunch over. And I was like, bet. So I'm not going to be taking a shit while I'm here. So I just, (laughs) I was there for three days. I just held on to it because I wasn't taking the risk. Um, But I mean, yeah. So then after three days, they take me back to the thing. They're like, okay, here's your home detention box and your monitor. Go home and plug it in. And I was like, wow, y'all really just threw me in jail to, like, 
treat me like shit. Like, right. It wasn't about a safety thing because they let me drive away from the federal building by myself with my monitoring box to plug in myself. Like, if I was really a threat mm-hmm. to the point where y'all felt like y'all need to put me in jail, I could have just driven away right there because the shit wasn't set up. But so then I was on I was on home detention for like the next two months. And they really just started heating me up after that. They're like, you're never going to beat this case now that you have this whole gun range dispute. Who was saying that? The feds. The feds, okay. And they were like, you'll never beat it. So, and they kept telling me, plea, plea not, uh, go ahead and plead guilty. And I'm like, I'm not doing it. Y'all are not offering me anything good. So finally, they basically said, look, here's what we're going to offer you. You plead guilty. We'll give you just probation, no fines. And if you stay out of trouble, whatever that means, if you stay out of trouble, then... St- after Trump gets elected, after the election's over, or after Trump's election's over. Because, mm-hmm. like, if he lost or he won either way, he wasn't going to be the Fed's problem anymore. Right. So, right. Uh, at least in, in southern Ohio, they were like, then you could get off probation early if you stay out of trouble. Like, don't mm-hmm. go to a protest. Don't do this. Don't go on Twitter saying anything crazy. And I was just so beaten down by that point. It was like six or seven months into it. I was just like, fine, fuck it. Because I'm not going, I'm, you know. And this is an indictment of really the <sighs> the federal legal system as well as just the legal system as a whole, is that it's, it's, it's a grinding system is what they call it because they just try and grind you down as much as possible and coerce yeah. you into just pleading guilty or to just, you know, conceding yeah. with whatever they want you to do, basically. Yeah. So this has been now a, around seven months of trial and investigation and all of that back and forth, and you've now finally you've had it. And essentially, this is the price that you paid for... Being a white accomplice or ally or comrade or whatever word you prefer, and we can talk about that in a second, this is the price that you've paid for that and for being angry, essentially, and charging the stage. Well, yeah, and and I know earlier we had a question about whether or not what I was doing was strategic or whatever, Mm -hmm. and that's why I say going into this, one, I made sure that I was going to be the only activist in that space at all trying to do anything, Mm -hmm. and when I had that okay, I was like, bet, I'm going to let all my rage out. I'm going to go up there. So you intentionally did this independently and on your yeah. own. And that's why you want to know you want to know one else, especially no black or brown activists right, to so be you, entangled in the same legal system yeah. as you. And that's what I learned from the Stone Mountain thing is like I there that is a good place for my anger. And, mm. it to, and my that day was a totally white space. The only two people I had with me there weren't uh black and knew what I was going to do. Okay. I so see. they were all on board. They were they knew that there might be some risk involved on their behalf and they were willing to do it. Mm-hmm. Um and so like I did that Trump's the only day that I felt like I did totally right because I was able to be an example of what you're talking about is that righteous anger. Mm-hmm. But I was also knowing that I was the only, if anyone was going to take something for this, it was just going to be on me, which is yeah, right, right, which is smart. And to to the strategic point of what you said, I did a very little thing, and after that, you can go. I, I mean, I'm probably the only person who paid attention, but <laughs> Trump never hyped anyone up after that to do anything violent at his rallies. That after I did what I did, he stopped. And I, 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 I promise you, there there was one person assaulted after me at a Trump rally, and it was a white person being assaulted by a black person. I don't know that that's true because I remember when I protested uh, him in Atlanta. It was months after you you charged the stage, and as we were being dragged out, he was still shouting, "Get them out of there! Get them out of there!" And you know all kinds of he, no, I mean like he wasn't directly telling citizens to punch people anymore. He wasn't mm. telling anyone that he was going to. He made a statement after what I did where he kind of took back all the stuff he said about mm. that. But that's what I'm saying. I, I, I got him to pull back some. And if anything, it just it didn't let it go totally unchecked. To, to me, the biggest positive takeaway from what you did was I think it upped the standards for what white people should mm. do, um, especially in relation to Trump. I think it I know, up- Which I still think is quite a low. The standards are definitely low. Standards, that, are all, yeah. standards are pretty much always too low for white people <laughs> in what's seen as acceptable for their activism. Mm-hmm. And I'm just real as hell with that. I think the highest level you can get is to be a fucking Antifa and just go and punch a fucking neo-Nazi in the face. At this point, or go assault a... Never mind. <laughs> I was going to say, what, what, it, it depends on what we can say. Not trying to catch a case. Right. And I think another example of white people putting their bodies on the line in similar ways, right... 
like Antifa, who, you know, if, if you're a white person who wants to mask up and go beat the shit out of some neo-Nazis, or I'm right. 100% behind that. So I, one time I was being arrested, me, actually me at a protest, it was me and a whole row of all the marshals were pretty much all black people. Mostly we were all black femmes and queer people, actually. And we started getting snatched by police, and they were, like, intentionally targeting visible activists who they know in the city. Mm-hmm. And a good friend of mine, whose name I won't I'll omit, uh, but he he de-arrested me. He literally pulled me out of handcuffs. It's on. We have there's pictures of it. It's very mm. cool. But he literally put his body on the line, de-arrested me. So he pulled me out of the zip ties, mm. kind of wrestled with the officer to get me out a little bit, and then shoved his hands in there because the officer was planning on arresting somebody, but only had the capacity to arrest one person because right. it's one officer, which gave me the chance to run away. And then afterwards, he explained. It was because he, as a white person, has a lot less to lose by being entangled in the legal system than I would have. Someone who does have a prior or, you know, and someone who deeply could not afford any kind of bail money or anything like that. So I think that these are just tangible examples of what you started off saying in the beginning of the podcast was that your job as a white person who cares and who's anti-racist is to literally put your body on the line. Yeah. Right, it's not this metaphorical. I'm here for you in spirit and solidarity. We shall overcome. Well, and specifically that line, oftentimes is there's a line between the person that that you're that you care about that you want to defend and the police officer. Mm-hmm. That's the line you need to go stand on. Like it's it's very physical. Like literally just putting yourself in between a violent white person, whether that be a mm-hmm. cop or that be a politician or whatever, putting yourself in between that and the, the people that they would be trying to harm. That's the line. Like, it's not like we need you to go on. Like, because we talk about not being metaphorical. Literally, right there. That's that's how close you need mm-hmm. to slide your physical body into right. a space <laughs> to actually, mm-hmm. if it matters to you, said that you've done something. Right. Because we know that at demonstrations or protests or in, you know, in various altercations, the way that a racist, and when I say a racist, I include a police officer, a fucking soldier, a Marine, a KKK member with a gun, right? A racist, even if he reacts towards you as a white person with anger and with violence, it's still going to be much different than how they would react to a black or brown person, right? It's, it's psychological. So that's kind of how you started the podcast, was talking about putting your body on the line. And you've shown se- several tangible ways and given examples of how other white people who want to be down and who want to be about what they talk about could do that. I want to touch back on something we briefly mentioned real quick, and then we'll end on that. But this kind of rhetoric of allyship. I remember the safety pin movement and the, you know... Well, tonight. Tonight's the uh, the black dress. Oh, perfect example is all mostly, you know, white and rich celebrities on the red carpet at the Golden Globes doing the black dressed red carpet protests, which really for working class people and women who are assaulted does nothing. But anyways. Well, if you notice, they've never said that this pro, at least I've met, it's mostly not been said to me. Anytime I see it, it's a, as a headline, they say the. Hollywood sexual harassment scandal, the Hollywood sexual assault mm-hmm. allegations. They specify all about Hollywood, Hollywood and the right. women of Hollywood, and not mm-hmm. the poor women of the right. world. It's just or about not, these highly glamorized. Or I think, I mean, think about you know Hollywood sexual assault scandal. Take out the word Hollywood, and it now becomes sexual assault scandal, which is a nationwide and global problem, right? right? But by putting the word Hollywood there, they've now made it. Hollywood is associated with whiteness. It's associated with with a class yeah. um, location. It's associated with a gender many times. So they've now just kind of ruptured and taken out any meaningful protest that could have been there, right? Yeah. So what is the where where do you? I guess I'll just say this succinctly to end it. What advice do you want to give to? I I, be, I get DMs on Twitter and messages on Facebook. And emails all the time from white people asking me as a black person, like, what do I do? How can I help? And I have, like, a sometimes, honestly, a copy and paste response. Unless there's something unique about their message, their messages always feel like a copy and paste message to me as well, mm-hmm. right? So what what do you say to them? Because I am not white. I can't tell white people what white people should should do. I can say what I think you should do. But as far as actually being in that space, I don't care to put myself in those shoes and try it out. 
if you asked me a year or two ago, I would have just said, just listen to these people. Listen, listen to the voices of these various communities that you seek to help, and you can't go wrong. Mm-hmm. And I've learned that that's not true, that there's quite a few voices within these given communities who will utilize their platform within these communities just for personal gain and might end up giving you bad advice. Mm-hmm. They might end up telling you something that's not actually going to help anybody. So it's definitely about listening. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to say find the right people to listen to. Like I don't know how I found you as one of the people that I listen to, but I definitely would say I can notice the difference between you and somebody else who might be arguing the same cause, but you're obviously going to give so right, I get I get what you're saying because so hard a lot of they could end up on DeRay's Twitter. So well, that was exactly what I was about to say is a lot of times when I go and do guest lectures, you know, at various places or schools or events, a lot of white people will come up to me afterwards and say, "Oh yeah, I always like follow you." You know, I used to follow DeRay, but I just wasn't really feeling it. So now, you know, or stuff like that, and they always use DeRay as an example. And I'm not hating on brother, whatever, cool, but. If white people are following what he's saying allies and white comrades should do versus what I'm saying allies right. and white comrades should do, which I'm I'm genuinely saying that someone, not me, but somebody shouldn't should tell white people that they should insinuate violence, likely, probably, kind of, <laughs> on races and oppressors, uh, right? So I very am open and clear about that, about putting your body on the line is not some metaphorical statement as used by blue vest people. How would you say white people should navigate knowing which voices to listen to? Because some would say even that whole notion is problematic of telling white people, well, just listen to the right voices. Because then right. they could listen to the Ben Carsons. They can listen to the, to the DeRays. They That's, can listen to the, to the is, Ta-Nehisi Coates, to the Cornell West. I, I've, I guess I've been lucky that I've mostly been listening to some people who are right nine times out of ten, I would say. But I, I, guess, I guess here's what I could say. Mm-hmm. The moment it started to click for me as far as who I needed to listen to versus who I didn't is when I started asking myself the question, is this working? And and I could see what was working in organization and protests mm-hmm. and I could see what wasn't. Mm-hmm. I could see where things needed to go. And then I said, all right, well, where are the voices who have been trying to drag us in that mm-hmm. direction since this started? Or the people who have been in the streets? And then who are the people who keep doing the same thing over and over again? Like, I don't know if I should say this, but Sean King. Sean King was the first person I noticed who was going to do the exact same thing every single time a black person is murdered. That doesn't change much. It doesn't change anything. He's just a part of the cycle. And I, and so I guess most of these people I guess would be listening are white, liberal, maybe mm-hmm. want to be left-leaning. Who knows? I assume a lot of the people listening to this podcast are probably not <laughs> white liberals. <laughs> well, if, if a white liberal somehow <laughs> stumbles upon, because I mean, like, that's the only person that might be saved, right? Right, 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 right. Hillary liked the phrase the resistance. Bernie liked the phrase all revolution. Go learn about resistances. Mm -hmm. Go learn about revolutions. Black people and brown people worldwide have done the thing that we're trying to figure out what we should do. Like, that's Mm -hmm. been done. And so if you just go look at, like, what the Black Panther said, if you just go look at, like, what the Cuban Revolution was about, what measures they had to take... Then you could start to see, okay, now how is that reflected in the world I live in today? Mm-hmm. And I think that there are those people who are making strong ties to that revolutionary tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you even recently just tweeted about how sad it was that the black uh, radical co- tradition is always is it misused mm-hmm. and misused and appropriated. Misused and, and appropriated. But so like, don't worry about like go look at that message though before you're getting it watered down right by somebody else like what were they what were the black panthers saying the black panthers mm-hmm. were saying self defense so they were saying john brown was right right no, and that that was a big moment for me when i malcolm x said the only type of white people he would respect were yeah. were john brown he, he said that was the only white person that was right yeah and so it's like well if you hear that from malcolm x mm-hmm. then you have to decide if you're willing to go that far but the, again you're at the same hurdle because Malcolm X is a, a huge step for white people, right? So getting really? from getting getting from Al Sharpton to MLK <laughs> to uh, political dysphoria in the middle <laughs> to <laughs> to uh, Malcolm to a white person who accepts the words of Malcolm X 
is a huge step. So you said to seek out the right people and the right black and brown people to confirm yourself as a white comrade. In my opinion, you need to seek them out, but you need to seek out who makes you the most uncomfortable in a principled way. That's a good. That's a good. Right. Because I think that. It's not about following the right ones who are saying the right things that mm-hmm. you think this is the radical or the righteous thing. It's who's sense. making you the most uncomfortable as a white person, as someone with privilege or capital, right? Like, I try to, for example, I use my platform as a way to try and make pe- white people uncomfortable often. I try to make rich people uncomfortable often, tell them I'm coming for their fucking riches one day. I try to, you know, but I try to make straight people uncomfortable. So if you've got to the point where you follow me and you accept these things that I say, you're now following something that makes you deeply uncomfortable, but you, but being uncomfortable is almost the only way for a white person to do any kind of self-reflection. Yeah, I, I, that makes a lot of sense. I, the work should never feel comfortable in what you're doing and what you're risking and mm-hmm. then also the feedback or the loop that you exist in. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, honestly, I think that's what you said makes sense. And I think that's the problem, if, not to be shady, but that's the problem with Sam Whiteout's entire work. With those type of... Those type yeah. of right. Oh, not, not just specifically not just, him, no, not just him though. I want to make it larger because well, yeah, a lot of it, he is he's symptomatic of a larger trend of white quote unquote activists who don't do much. Yeah, they're they are selling you like you can you can do this and people will acknowledge that you're not racist and then you can feel better. Mm-hmm. And the work should not be about you getting to feel better but not having done anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I think what you said is like spot on. It's like who's making you the most uncomfortable? I mean. Yeah. I mean, I'll... And I think that my, my mentor, Dr. Benjamin, he always says it's not enough for anyone, right, in, in this world, not just white people, but literally anyone of any race. It's not just enough for you to not be racist. You have to also be an anti-racist. Yeah. Meaning, even me as a black person who technically can't be quote-unquote racist, I still need to be anti-racist. Right. White people cannot be satisfied with not being racist. You have to actually be anti-racist. Latino people, Indian people, et cetera, et cetera. You have to be anti-racist. And I think that... Anyone who calls himself an ally has clearly not made that step yet, in my opinion. But I mean, ally is just such a funny word because it's like we have allies, but how often do they? I mean, if you think about my introduction to the term, is something probably from social studies, mm-hmm. and it's like we go to war and we have allies, <laughs> but what do they actually even do? Sometimes right. they help. Sometimes they're just like, yeah, you go. I mean, right? yeah, I think an ally is just a, an ally, <laughs> just on a definitional standpoint. I agree with you. You know, to say, I'm an ally of a cause, yeah. (laughs) But it's extremely comfortable, right? Yeah, all you have to do is agree. What if I were to say, you know, I'm an ally of Antifa, right? Right. So, I'm an ally of those people who just go and fight and, you know, beat up racists and fascists. Do all the But I'm just an ally. I'm just an ally. I admire them. It's It's like having a favorite basketball player. You're an ally of that basketball player. Yeah. You buy their jersey. You just give them a cosign. You go to the it. you That's go to the game. To do. You go to the game. You hope they'll sign a picture or two afterwards. You try. You hope you can go down on the court afterwards and get a picture with them, and <clears throat> say you were on the court. You, that's your allyship. Right. That's not being a comrade. That's not being an accomplice by any means. Right. No, I think. Yeah. Anything else you want to tell to the people? I just want y'all to know Devin is so much smarter than me. <laughs> oh, whatever. Like, this is supposed to be about him learning from me. I feel like this whole this whole time, every time he says something, I'm like, damn, you right as fuck. <laughs> I'm just like, damn, learning. And I guess that's the other thing. Like, you're going to feel like any time, I guess, this is personal. You're going to feel uncomfortable all the time, and you're going to be wrong a lot. Like, how many times are I wrong in this podcast? Or A lot. I don't ever let that be like oh i can't do this work it's too stressful i'm like i need to learn this mm-hmm. i have to learn that like, people's lives could be depending on whether or not i actually hear and digest and accept this information and i think that is so essential so it's like take take shit in the chin and know that it's 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 uh, it's what you need you know mm-hmm. it's like going to the gym you need it do you because everyone needs to because you were supposed to be my exercise so that was a nice spiel and i'm gonna end on this you were supposed to be my gym accountability buddy and we haven't been to the gym in two months together so don't fucking tell these fucking ugly ass white people that they need that that they need to go to the gym fake news don't tell these little ugly white people news what you told me you you texted me don't tell these and you said what you said what are you doing listen don't tell don't tell these pasty people that they need to be up in the gym because one i don't even like when there's a bunch of white people in there I don't. We know. 
And two, you don't like it when there's a bunch of white people anywhere. Is there is, is there a place you you prefer there to be a lot of white? They people? They need to go back to the Caucasus Mountains. I, agreed. <laughs> I think there should be a mass exodus of all white people back to Europe after they pay, after they pay everyone back. Of course, there's definitely going to be some people. I would left be. Over I would. Work I would definitely be too afraid of whatever outcome that might bring. <laughs> I think it would just bring civil war amongst white people. I think it would just I think it would. And you know you're going too. Unfortunately. Okay. I just want you talking about all this civil oh. white people back. You're on the boat as well. Yeah, I know. It's okay. I'll be laughing. That's fine. Do what you got to do. I just, you're not. You're no longer in my African America. <laughs> <laughs> the new black nation. Right, back to the gym thing. Devin tweeted me one day and he said something like, Hey, we're ending on this, by the what way. What are you doing? We need to go to the gym. And I tweeted, and I texted him something back, like, I'm in my room crying watching High School Musical. I'm depressed. And I said, and then he said, You were supposed to be my gym accountability buddy. And I said, When did we ever agree to this? It was just an implied, it was understood. No, it was not. I got a membership so, at the gym you go to because of that. So I'm mm. very proud of you and all the steps you took. <laughs> you should have never counted on me. To, a white not, person. to not be depressed enough to go to the gym. I really think it's a manifestation of whiteness in the ways in <laughs> which you were able to manipulate me into into putting what little capital I'm I an have ally. into. <laughs> I'm just. I kidding. support you going to the gym. With that, I will I will end the podcast before I start intellectualizing why you're a horrible accountability buddy. Bye bye everybody. <laughs>